You are the master of your reality. This is even more true in relation to the government. Democracy doesn't just happen. It takes participation. Governments need participation and feedback from their citizens. Join Rob Hutchinson for Dear Parliament, where you get to understand the issues and engage directly with government. Dear Parliament is every Wednesday at midday, only on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Dear Parliament. And as you should know, it's the show in which I attempt to bring Parliament and civil society closer to you. And of course, I do it in the hopes that you are encouraged to be an active and responsible citizen who's participating in your democracy. And you can easily do so, should you wish to, by having your say on in the decision-making uh, decision processes in policy formation and other dem democratic processes. If you want more information on that, you can pop over to drsa.org.za where you'll find an easy-to-use public participation platform that ensures your voice is acknowledged and considered by our government and considered before a policy can can be implemented. You know, it's all good and well and good, but what happens when our government uh, flouts the mandatory public participation process? And I need to say, stress that it is, it is mandatory, as it is in our constitution, that, that government does have to uh, put every, every decision out for public comment and involve the public, who is you, in the decision-making processes. Well, let's perhaps make use of an event and legal discovery that occurred last week, wherein the Department of Health labelled four non-profit civil organisations as terrorists and saboteurs who are allegedly undermining the public participation process, which is currently underway on the amendments to the Health Act and the regulations contained therein. During, during the legal discovery phase, which is where the legal teams exchange documents and evidence to support their arguments, the Department of Health sent through over 1.5 million pages of information. This included emails, uh, presentations, meeting minutes, and comments surrounding a legal challenge to the Health Act regulations. Within this mountain of, of documents, uh, we discovered interdepartmental emails that clearly revealed what officials think of those who challenge or opposed ill-conceived regulations. Well, anti-progressive, instigating terrorism, sabotage, and forcing government to waste resources is how the groups opposed to the proposed regulations have been characterized. These clearly unfounded accusations are not only against the nonprofit organizations, but also against over 300,000 active and responsible citizens who had their say on the amendments. A right, as I mentioned, which is guaranteed, in fact, it is mandated in the Constitution of South Africa. Is our government suggesting that the Constitution of our country encourages anti-progressive behavior? or acts of sabotage and terrorism against the state? Well, it would certainly appear to be the, the case. You know, the four non-profit civil society organizations who stand accused are AfriForum, Dear South Africa, 
Liberty Fighters Network and Action for Freedom, and all of which are involved in a legal battle with our government over these proposed health regulations. In my opinion, such bizarre accusations by the state is a clear intimidation tactic. But more obvious is that it is an indication that the state has no clear argument, no presentable evidence, or a legally sound justification to support their draft regulations or an amendment to the Health Act. Further, I find it quite odd that an organization such as Dear South Africa, while on the one hand being supported, encouraged, and uh, praised by an arm of government for helping government to be a better government, can also be branded as terrorists by another arm of government. Certainly strange times indeed. If you were not aware, Dear South Africa was recently awarded a grant by the African Union to expand public participation processes and the Dear platform into African Union member states, which is a clear indication that endorsement, or such as a clear indication and endorsement of the work the organization does to uphold true democracy. It's really such a shame that the South African government is is blind to to this reality and has chosen to go down the path of labeling them as terrorists. Nonetheless, I live in hope that our government will see the light perhaps one one day. And on that on that topic, we will be chatting to uh, David Ansara, who is the CEO of of an organization called CRA, which uh, is a risk analysis organization, uh, perhaps part of the uh, IRR an offshoot of of that fantastic organization. And he'll be chatting to us about public participation, certain events around around the many projects that organizations are running events that are happening in South Africa, and of course, what he is up to at the moment. But don't go anywhere because uh, that'll be coming up pretty, pretty soon. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. Indeed, democracy doesn't just happen. It takes considerable amount of, of hard work. But Thankfully, there are organizations out there that do the work for you and make life certainly a lot easier. One of those organizations is CRA, of which David Ansara is the CEO of. And welcome, David. Good to have you on the show. Hi, Rob. Always good to be chatting to you. Fantastic. Fantastic. I trust your week has been rather busy and you've been keeping out of trouble, although think it's not the case is it david <laughs> <laughs> well uh i always uh, try and look at where the trouble is is happening and i gravitate towards it i don't know if that means i'm causing it but uh, <laughs> i'm interested in analyzing it some might see it as as such i mean we or dear south africa was recently labeled as terrorists by by the government for performing a mandatory a democratic process, which is actually stipulated in the Constitution. So I think interesting times ahead is a great saying that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Well, clearly we are on the side of freedom fighter, but well, for the public, but for government, we are seen as, as terrorists. 
interesting times indeed. So David, tell us a bit about, about yourself. Who is David and Sara? Well, I'm a risk analyst, so I spend my time studying and analyzing public policy and understanding the complexity that is the South African political economy, how uh, political and economic choices impact on ordinary people's lives. I talk to a lot of people in the business sector. So our clients include corporates, financial institutions, small business owners, and we help them to navigate through uncertainty. So there is a lot of risk, as you will be uh, very familiar, Rob, in South Africa. And, you know, I think that this came to a head very dramatically last year in July with the with the riots and, and civil unrest. Um, a lot of businesses and, and lives were, were lost in that process. And so we we play a early warning role for our for our clients and help them to anticipate events before they happen. And our slogan is understand, prepare, prosper. So if you can understand the risks in the present environment, you can prepare to mitigate against those risks, then you can prosper into the future. So the future orientation is very important for us. We do a lot of corporate briefings uh, based on our scenario planning methodology. So we help our clients to to look ahead to see what's happening in the future. Oh, brilliant. And no, no doubt the South African environment does offer many different opportunities and, and many different scenarios as we never really know which way our government is, is going to swing. And it's never more evident now than, than it is now. What have been your, some of your, your greatest tasks to, to date? So I think... One of the one of the principles that we try to convey to our clients, and I think there is this narrative that South Africa uh, is in desperate need of political and policy reform, and we would certainly echo that. But I think that there is quite a lot of confirmation bias that a lot of people, they look for evidence of reform where perhaps it isn't really there. And I think the current administration has been able to position itself through clever marketing and PR as this kind of uh, voice of reform. Uh, and the president himself uh, often speaks the rhetoric of reform. But what we try to convey to our clients is that we don't think that there is very much evidence for that uh, in South Africa. And uh, I think there are many reasons for that and we can get into it. But, you know, if you look at all of the major sectors in South Africa's economy, be that manufacturing, mining, uh, energy production, uh, the uh, ability of uh, employers to hire and to fire workers based on, on their labor needs. Uh, so the labor regulatory framework is, is very constrained. The you know, fundamental principles like property rights are often openly questioned by the government. So we had this very protracted process, this discussion around expropriation without compensation. The proposed constitutional amendment was voted down in December 2021, but this EWC debate still rages on in the background. There's this proposal for a land court bill, uh, which would essentially bring in EWC through the back door, give this this 
body extensive powers so you know if you look across all of these sectors you're not really seeing the the evidence for reform and there's there's a reason for that which is that policy is downstream from ideology and the ideological convictions of the government are very uh, socialist in orientation very statist so they see a state is playing a central role in managing and commanding economic activity, uh, which creates a whole lot of perverse incentives. It creates sometimes second order effects that you can't always anticipate. And it also gives government bureaucrats an exaggerated level of control over economic affairs. We would say rather let market forces determine economic activity. The state should play a minimal role to be managing law and order and the rule of law and protecting the sovereignty of the country, uh, perhaps creating a, a sound infrastructure base and light touch, touch regulation, but shouldn't be the, the kind of central actor in, in society and in the economy. So that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges to convey to our clients and to the, the broader public is the, the reasons for the lack of reform. And we see some fiddling at the margins here and there, some spectrum allocation or uh, 100 megawatt uh, ceiling on on private energy generation. Uh, but these are kind of not even 1% of the reforms that are needed to unlock growth in South Africa. No, that, that's all well and good. But our, our government keeps talking about uh, reform. And it seems to be a, a common political, political subject that's bashed around there or a political term not even not even really a subject but where is this reform happening and and why does government view uh, their definition of reform differently to what true reform really is so i, I think reform yeah it's perhaps a, a bit of a weasel word you know it, it depends on on who's saying it uh, it can have a variety of different meanings but what i would stress is that reform is not like a buffet where you can go and, and pick one or two reforms that that take your fancy. You really, it's actually, it's a five course meal and you need to, to do everything that is needed. You know, I mentioned property rights. So you can, you know, talk about South Africa being open for business and you can have investment conferences and, uh, and you can get all sorts of pledges and commitments. But if you're not doing the, the basic communication around, well, listen, this is a safe place to do business. We encourage you to come here. We will respect the sanctity of your operations. We will, you will be able to earn money here. I think that's sometimes uh, the the point that's often missed in these discussions. It's like, well, you know, fundamentally what is needed is that businesses must be incentivized by the profit motive. Uh, if they can't make money in South Africa, they're not going to come here out of a sense of charity or goodwill towards South Africa. They want to make a return on investment. That's their, their number one priority. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's perhaps a failure to understand that. I think the president, you know, he's a very wealthy man, but he's never run a business as a, an executive or managed a business or started a new enterprise as an entrepreneur. So, and, you know, I think that that's the case for many uh, people within the government. And, you know, we can also get into the, you know, the role that organized business plays as well, Rob, uh, in in this kind of policy uh, debate. But, uh, you know, I think also um, in many respects, what what we try to do at the the CRA is to 
to not only analyze the risks in the current environment, but provide alternative policy frameworks uh, that could achieve uh, meaningful economic growth and, and prosperity in the country. Uh, so, yeah, we can get into what some of those might be a bit later. But, you know, I think that there is a, a fundamental ideological orientation that is hostile towards business, um, that sees business as something that the state gives permission to uh, or needs to support in a targeted way. Uh, you know, the motor industry, I think, is a good example. Uh, billions of rands, I think up to 20 billion rand over the last 20 years or so has been allocated towards the motor industry uh, through subsidies and so on. So, and now we also see the state uh, pursuing a localization strategy and localization always sounds very nice, but what it means in practice is putting up uh, tariff barriers, um, giving preferential access to local firms that are perhaps not that competitive uh, and that all ends up being at the expense of consumers uh, and, and basically elevates the costs of, of doing business in South Africa. Mm -hmm. It certainly does. And I, you, you kind of wonder who, who's actually uh, advising government on, on these matters, because clearly government doesn't come up with these ideas by themselves, it, especially, especially our government. I don't believe there's a capacity in, in that. As you say, Ramaphosa might be a wealthy individual, but certainly not a, not a good businessman. And I think we've seen that throughout throughout the ANC government, lifelong politicians and freedom fighters definitely do do not have a good business sense, <clears throat> which is which is kind of kind of worrying because the policies that they do seem to be adopting are detrimental to to the country. Yet they are going ahead with them. Surely, surely they are should be looking at the long-term effects rather than the short-term effects. Have you had any uh, presentations to government which have been successful or successfully adopted? We do have several government departments that subscribe to our service, Rob, and we often have very good engagements with them. But I think you also need to look at the incentives in which these entities are operating. And, you know, I think the you have to kind of think of, well, Mr. Ramaphosa, to take one example, he was involved in the business sector, but now he's involved in politics and politics has its own set of incentives. Um, and, you know, he has certain constituencies within the party and within the country that he needs to serve in order to uh, sustain himself in power. And I think often when you look at the what I call the Department of Bad Ideas, uh, which is the most productive and energetic department in the South African government. You know, often some of these... <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> often some of these, these laws are quite baffling. You think, you know, surely, as you said, you use that word, surely, they can see the consequences of the action. I think they can see very clearly and they have a very a specific objective that they're wanting to achieve. It's not that they are ignorant of the effects. It's very deliberate. Um, they, you know, if you consider, for example, uh, the uh, Basic Education Laws Amendment Bill, uh, you know, that is going to constrain the ability of school governing bodies to uh, make appointments to schools and to and how they constitute themselves and their language policies, for example. Uh, there is an ideological attack there against 
uh, Afrikaans medium schools. And, you know, that the consequence of the state controlling school governing bodies and and admissions policies is that they want to impose a certain agenda there. So that's not conspiratorial. I mean, if you look at any statement uh, made by Panyaza Lesufi, the Gauteng MEC for Education, you'll, you'll see that's very often, you know, uh, we take a, a bit of an unusual view, which is when a politician says he or she is going to do something, we believe them. <laughs> uh, often people assume that politicians are speaking in this coded, indirect way. Uh, but, you know, all you have to do is read their speeches or, or their or their policy documents, which we do quite a lot. Mm. Um, you know, there was a very interesting policy document released by the ANC recently in the run-up to its policy conference, I think that's next month, which will precede their elective conference at the end of the year. And there is a, a recognition of the ANC's dire state at the moment. Its electoral performance is down on aggregate, it reached 46% if you had to tally up all of the municipal votes that it, that it received in last year's local government elections. And it's aware of the risks of losing power in key urban areas, particularly like Gauteng, and it sees unemployment numbers going up, just like the rest of us do. But it is seemingly incapable of course correcting. Uh, if you read that document, it's a pretty hefty tub, it's over 150 pages. But, you know, I think this is a very good illustration of the ideological underpinnings of policy. You know, I think BEE is a very good example. You know, the president was recently quoted as saying, well, we need to intensify BEE. And yeah. I, I interviewed Andre Dureta of ESCOM, the ESCOM CEO, recently on my podcast, mm. uh, which you appeared on as a guest, but, uh, Rob. Uh, so I'd encourage <laughs> your listeners to to check that out as well. But, um, no, don't, don't, don't encourage them at all. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and when I chatted to Andre Dureta, you know, I asked him about PE in public procurement policy, and he said, you know, he was very diplomatic. He said, uh, well, one of the problems with ESCOM's procurement is that this is one value adding intermediaries into the procurement process. Um, and, you know, there he's alluding to the the ways in which preferred black suppliers were given preferential access, but maybe they were middlemen. They were, you know, perhaps, you know, taking a, a marginal cut or even getting, you know, corrupt access to some of these contracts because of their connections to cronies within the utility. And, and you know, that's just completely damaged ESCOM and its ability to function properly. And you can extend that across uh, the whole of the private sector as well. And that's not to say that the economic empowerment of black people is not important. It's very important and you get there through the right the right growth-focused policies. But BEE, as it's been currently constituted, is, is essentially an elite enrichment scheme uh, that's been very beneficial for the, the creamy layer at the top, but hasn't really done much to transform the economic fortunes of, of most poor South Africans. And the president's response is, well, we need to intensify BEE, as his, his words, but that just amounts to doubling down on a, on a failed policy. So, uh, you know, I think the ANC is almost caught in this negative feedback loop um, that the more its ideological orientation leads it to institute these damaging policies, the more deleterious the effects are of these policies, the more the negative social consequences emerge, and then the response is more of the same from the yeah. government. Um, so I, it's this kind of like death spiral that it's caught in. 
It is. It's, it's definitely caught, caught in that death spiral. And I, I was going to point out that uh, at what point does does government actually acknowledge that policy should not be swayed by ideology, and will they ever get get to that point? I, I really don't know if if they will. It's perhaps a rhetorical question. Well, I don't think. Rob, I mean, I think a good example was this energy situation. Mm and this lifting of the cap on private energy generation up to 100 megawatts. Uh, the government sees ESCOM as a, quote, strategic asset, even if the asset isn't performing particularly well, and the lights are going off every week. But my point is, when there were the rolling blackouts in April last year, you know, it was the situation was becoming untenable, and eventually the president was almost forced to announce that, you know, yeah, okay, we're going to lift this cap. But it, that was a, a last step after years and years. I mean, at that stage, it's been 13 years since load shedding began. Um, and a reluctant, almost like a reflexive action, um, a capitulation to reform rather than a wholesale embracing of reform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think if we look at that as, a, as an example, I mean, I, I asked Andre Dureta, well, wh- why do we even have a cap? on private energy generation. Surely if a, an entrepreneur is willing to take a risk, yeah. this was his response. He said he doesn't doesn't care either way. If, if somebody wants to build a 5,000 megawatt uh, private energy facility, then and they're happy to take that risk and to finance it, then why should the state stand in the way? So even yeah. with that example, you, know, you still see this residual attitude of, well, no, no, we still need to give you permission to do this. Um, and, you know, if you really think about it, Rob, you know, wh- why should the state have this sole mandate over energy production? Like, what's stopping me from generating electricity and selling it to you? Mm-hmm. Um, that that seems kind of arbitrary and unfair. So, Or anything, in fact. I don't think it should just be limited to energy. I think that it could be said for any any industry in in the in the private sector the, the private sector has way more experience at operating running at a profit and sustaining service service delivery issues rather than than government does i have to ask david what is it just incompetence within government uh, spheres or are there other more nefarious reasons behind their seemingly pursuit to fail well, I'm a big fan of the mental model of Hanlon's razor, which is don't attribute to malice that which can be ascribed to incompetence. Uh, but I do think that, you know, there is, I mean, I mentioned this education bill, for example. I mean, I think there was a, a kind of a racial animus there, or at least towards Afrikaans. Uh, you know, I think there was, with EWC, I, I don't think that was legitimately about land reform. Uh, we have a very fractional amount of our national budget dedicated to land reform. Uh, most land reform projects have been horribly uh, mismanaged or exploited. Uh, so I think with EWC, there was definitely an ideological hostility towards uh, private land ownership and and uh, farmers in particular. Uh, the president used the term the original sin of South Africa is uh, you know, white land ownership. So... You know, I don't want to be uh, overly uh, conspiratorial or anything, but I think, you know, if you just look at the rhetoric that government uses, often there is that, that kind of tinge of hostility. Um, and I think if you study anything coming out of 
the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition, uh, you know, you also see a, a kind of a suspicion of the private sector and the profit motive. Um, so I don't think it's perhaps uh, malicious, but I think it's it's very clearly ideological and and intentional. Definitely, it definitely is, and I think that's probably the downfall of of our government is is not willing to see to see what has happened, and we should have learned from from past experiences too. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm chatting today with David Ansara from the Centre for Risk Analysis about some rather interesting developments and insights into policy formation, why government doesn't listen, always anti-reform, although they claim to be pro-reform, and, and a whole lot more. If you've only just tuned in now, uh, you can catch up with the podcast, which is available on Spotify, or on our website at www.chaifm.com. And while you're there, check out some few, uh, a few of the past episodes, and there's some rather interesting guests there, which I'm sure you would uh, love to listen to. So, David, welcome back. And we we kind of trailed trailed off there, but I'd like to focus on more um, about what's ahead for South Africa. What 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 do we have? in 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 the pipeline is there anything exciting coming up and do we see a prospect for for real positive change so rob i think the next two years are going to be critical for south africa's future and the reason for that is as we were mentioning the anc government is sort of running out of ideas the policies are not working uh, just in the ad break you were talking about uh, the Youth Day event that Chai FM is going to be having. And, you know, I think it's quite sad and tragic to note that youth unemployment, the unemployment rate is sitting at about 65%. So that's for those 15 to 24. And, you know, so basically you're more likely as a young person to be unemployed than in a job in South Africa. Uh, so that's a, a huge social powder keg, for example. Mm, and... Yeah, and so, you know, a lot of these young people have prospects for the future. They, they want to, to find work. They want to uh, start a family and all those things. Uh, but at the moment, they're kind of locked out. So th that's just another symptom. And there was, I think, uh, a, a very seminal event last year, which was those, those local government elections. And I think that those elections really broke the idea of ANC hegemony, um, that the ANC is the only show in town and that they are necessarily always going to be a part of, of government in South Africa. And what we, what we always thought, and a lot of analysts thought this too, was that one day a challenger would come, a, a single big party that would kind of grow to a size and scale that would uh, eventually challenge the, the ANC's dominance. But instead, I think what we're seeing is the emergence of multiple parties representing perhaps divergent interests, sectional interests. We've seen the rise of Action SA. The DA still has pretty decent vote share, north of 20%. Uh, 
KZN, we've got uh, the IFP, which, uh, although not as strong as it used to be, is still a present force. And a number of other uh, small interest group parties, regional parties, parties that perhaps represent a particular language group or or a geographical location and their specific interests. And, yeah, we use the metaphor of the wild dogs here. So if you think of the ANC as being uh, this old grizzled buffalo that's been roaming the savannah unchecked for many, many decades, uh, it's now being uh, threatened by this pack of wild dogs. And wild dogs are you know, quite loud and often yap at each other and mm. don't... Uh, don't seem to look very organized, but if they if they act in concert, they can actually bring down even a big, mighty buffalo. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that that is a scenario that we are potentially looking at, is that this broad kind of alliance of, for want of a better term, centrist parties, uh, but, you know, that, that uh, coalition, as we've seen in, in Tswane, for example, can also involve... Uh, you know, parties on the right of the spectrum, uh, the Freedom Front Plus, and then also kind of on the, the centre-left as well. You know, the, if their incentives sufficiently align and if they have a sense of the bigger picture, uh, they could act in concert with one another. The big question is also obviously around the fate of the EFF. The EFF is not a wild dog. The EFF is more like a hyena, a kind of... Uh, <laughs> Absolutely following and uh, kind of gnawing on the entrails of, of South Africa. Mm. And yeah, so, you know, that would be, I think, a very interesting situation if we assume that the EFF will maintain its current position of about 11%, maybe on the upside get to 15%. They could have the balance of power. They've been somewhat reluctant to throw their lot in with the ANC at the local government level, and perhaps they realize also that they are more powerful outside of government withholding their support than they are within a government as a minority player, as they mm. so effectively demonstrated in the post-2016 environment where they uh, sort of uh, were the tail that wagged the dog of Herman Mashaba's then DA yes. mayoralship of Johannesburg. That was rather interesting. You know, you've got to ask where... Where does this leave independent candidates? We've seen proposed amendments to the Electoral Act, and uh, which seem to focus and promote independent candidates at, an, at a national level. However, there are many problems around that. Do they get one seat? Do they get 20 mm. seats and, and so on? What happens to the extra seats? So, Do you think there'll be a uprising there and a great support for independent candidates, whoever they might be? Look, I, I think it's interesting, but I, you know, I was just in my podcast, I interviewed my colleague, Marius Root, and he correctly, I think, warns that you know, perhaps this is not the most urgent issue facing South Africa's political system. It's actually more around, uh, you know, I think there are also some constitutional issues. You know, we need to have proportionality. And, you know, I think, well, certainly it's kind of a good thing to involve independence. Uh, you don't want to disrupt the, the, that proportionality principle. Um, and he called this recent amendment to the Electoral Act uh, a kind of a dog's breakfast. One of the things to watch out for is would this enable parties like the ANC 
to get more seats than they're currently getting, but off of a reduced or smaller percentage share of the actual votes. And that, I think, is, yeah, uh, people uh, a lot smarter than me have done some of the calculations to show that that could be a scenario, um, which I think is something you definitely want to avoid because that could disrupt the electoral arithmetic quite uh, dramatically. It certainly could, yeah. David, it's been an absolute wonderful uh, chat with you. We unfortunately are approaching approaching the end. How how do how do our listeners get get hold of you if they are an organisation or a company that that wants a serious risk analysis and a I want to say an accurate look into into the future through your scenario planning? What's the best way they can get in get in touch with you and you require your services. I think the best way to begin your engagement with us is to uh, get us in for a strategic intelligence briefing. If you are a corporate or, or a small business or a trade association or something like that, uh, we do charge an appearance fee for those. But there are more details on our website, www.cra-sa.com. And if you're interested in our analysis, I'd also encourage you to go onto YouTube, type in Center for Risk Analysis, and you'll see our daily short videos. Uh, we've had you on the on the show there as well, Rob, before. Uh, but we speak to political analysts, economists, uh, writers, lawyers, uh, you name it, about the risks facing South Africa. And there are lots of links there that you can also follow. We do run a, we do have a, a 30 day free trial. So if you want to access all of our reports, our data, all of that stuff, then you can, you can do so uh, via those links. Uh, but yeah, it was an absolute pleasure chatting to you today, Rob. Oh no, the, the, the pleasure is all, all mine. Thank you. <laughs> it was an absolutely wonderful topic, which I'm sure we could actually talk on for hours and hours. And perhaps we should. Perhaps we should. If you'd like I'd to see, it. yeah, oh, so would I. And let's get it. See if our uh, listeners would would enjoy the same, which I'm sure they will. If you, dear listeners, want want to engage with David or ask some more questions please feel free to do so. Send us an email at onair at highfm.com or at uh, SMS to 34519 and we'll get back to you or pass your question on to David immediately. David, thanks once again. It was absolutely wonderful and I'm looking forward to, to chatting with you again. And that brings us to the end of the Dear Parliament show for this Wednesday. Again, if you missed it, make sure to catch up with the podcast, which is available on Spotify or on our, on our website at www.highfm.com. But remember, democracy takes work and it involves your participation on a day-to-day basis in whatever means that, that you can. So, ciao for now and remember to tune in next week and always remain democratically engaged, active and responsible. Thank you very much.